0: One, two, three, go. Feminist.
1: Mormon. Housewives.
0: Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy. And we are almost done with covering the Wives of Joseph Smith. Now, of course, I'm not covering all the alleged Wives of Joseph Smith, just the ones that most scholars agree on. And uh, you're welcome to look at, there are much longer lists than, than the lists that I'm going with. But I think that this is a fair and uh, good list to go from. If this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend going with Episode 1 with Fanny Alger, as these episodes are meant to go in order. So today we're going to be talking about Another Wife of Joseph Smith. This time, uh, the woman's name is Desdemona Wadsworth-Fulmer, and uh, you can read the text about her life if you'd like. She was born in Pennsylvania on October 6, 1809, to parents Peter Fulmer and Susanna Zurfoss. She is also the sister of David Fulmer, who is mentioned briefly in this biography. And Desdemona... Um, we are so lucky that we have a lot of her own writing, and i like to tell, let these women tell their stories whenever possible. So let's what let does Demona bring us in?
1: I want to write a short history of my life, the more particular part that I think will do you some good, and those that came into this church not having the same experience that I have had. I was brought up with goodly parents, yet with the ignorance of the Gentiles. I've taught to pray, being raised very strictly. When I was 13 years old, I prayed much in secret alone to the Lord. From that time, I became very serious of mind. Not long after, I received a change of heart. Then I began to read the Bible much and all the different creeds of the churches to know what people I should join. I prayed much to know about it. I heard the Latter-day Saints preach the gospel, and I joined them soon after. I went to Kirtland with a few saints and lived one year there, during which time a great number of the members turned against the church. Oliver Cowdery, with others, would say to me, Are you such a fool as still to go hear Joseph the fallen prophet? I said, The Lord convinced me that he was a true prophet, and he has not told me that he is fallen
0: yet. According to family tradition, on one particular occasion, as she was praying and seeking for truth, she fell to the ground unconscious. For several hours she laid there as if dead. She wrote, quote,
1: There was a voice said to me, stop yet a little longer. There is something better for you yet. So I stopped till I heard the Latter-day Saints preach the gospel. I joined them soon after.
0: So we can tell that she was very tuned into the mystical, to the spiritual realm of things. This would not be uncommon for the time. A lot of mysticism was being practiced and interwoven with Christianity. And you can read more about those kind of mystical practices. We did a... Podcast of Mormons and Magic, the talk about Joseph Smith's history with magic. Uh, he was very tuned into what we would consider in, in the latter days, I guess, magic or priest crafts. But back then it was completely, completely different and not framed that way at all. And I would go ahead and recommend the Mormons and Magic podcast on this, on the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. And also, um, when sacred things become taboo, the podcast I did with Michael Reed about Mormons and the cross. And it also talks about how Joseph incorporated symbolism in his magic. So even before the church was started or before saints were converted, they were kind of primed with this sort of mysticism and spirituality. And Desdemona was no stranger to these things. Um, About 10 years later from that story that where she fell to the ground She she sort of had her own Joseph Smith moment. I don't know if you've noticed that, but she went in the woods, prayed, and was struck to the ground. This would also be a common experience to many people back then. Um, In 1835, the Fulmer family obtained a copy of the Book of Mormon, and they spent time reading it aloud together. Desdemona's brother, Alman, remembers, quote, It provoked mirth, since it so often came to pass. It riveted, however, a conviction of its truth upon our minds, end quote. So they kind of thought it was funny and amusing that it would say, And it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass. And they felt that was funny, but it still sealed some sort of truth to them. Uh, Desdemona was baptized a year later and soon gathered with a church in Kirtland and later on in Missouri. She embraced the gospel about the close of the year of 1836 in Ohio, and she was baptized by Elder John P. Green. She would write, quote, When the trouble began in Kirtland, Ohio, I moved to Caldwell
1: County, Missouri with my brother's family. There was trouble there for two years, the last being when the mob put the prophet Joseph and others into prison and killed many of the saints i had to move with some members from place to place for safety and sometimes at night we had to take a quilt in our arms and flee into the woods with the children then sometimes it would rain all night sometimes the mob would come to the door all armed and yell like indians you must leave here in three days or all will be killed when snow and winter was there my brother lay helpless with fever i spoke and said we have no team and wagon we may as well die in the house as a few rods from it so they let us go we started to march for illinois on the way the sectarian priests came around us and would say to us give up your faith and stay with us and you shall never want i said i have no faith in you nor in your father the devil so i shut them up every time
0: Demona was living with her brother David's family near Hans Mill, Missouri at the time when the massacre of the saints occurred in that place. And she and other members of the family were forced to hide in the woods to escape the mob. Now, this Hans Mill is something that every Mormon knows, and we kind of know the gist of it. But I I would like to go over it briefly. I'm certainly no expert, but I'd like to cover it briefly because this scene in early church history definitely, definitely shapes the church Throughout the rest of, I mean, it's still, it's still, we're still affected by this. We still talk about it. This early, early, violent, violent episode would absolutely shift the way that the church members saw themselves and saw others. Um, basically, let's just go over the facts of it. There was a man named Jacob Hahn that moved to Missouri. He was not a a Mormon, but he moved to Missouri in about 1835 or 1836. He sets up a mill in Caldwell County, Missouri. Um... The church members, of course, are starting to gather, and Missouri becomes sort of this hub of Mormonism as more and more families come and move there. Now, Hahn establishes his mill in 1835 or 1836, but by 1838, we have Governor Liburn Boggs who issues the extermination order. We all know about this. This is the order that tells the LDS followers to get out of Missouri or be exterminated. And there had been numerous scuffles between Mormons and Missourians leading up to that. You got to remember, tensions are mounting. They're already leaving. Joseph is facing a lot of accusations as it is. Um, of course, this is before the main, like, escalated practice of plural marriages is, is happening. But Joseph is being accused of raiding other people's, you know, cities and approaching young women. And there's a lot of legal issues involved. Joseph Smith has been accused of lying and magic and those kind of things. And there's just all sorts of tensions mounting. People are not, Missourians are starting to not be comfortable with these growing uh, numbers of Mormons who are settling. So this extermination order is uh, put out there, but Mormons believed that they had as much right as anyone else to remain in Missouri. So at the time of, when this massacre is going to take place, by 1838, there were about 75 Mormon families living along the banks of Shoal Creek and about 30 of them in the immediate vicinity of Hans Mill. So this was like a Mormon hub around this mill. Now, militias were also being formed. you got to remember, militias were sort of like a pseudo-army. I mean, they were sort of sanctioned by the government sometimes, but not really. This particular militia would be, um, if I remember right, organized by the sheriff of Livingston County, Colonel William Jennings. And I think it had like 240 men from the surrounding county areas that he had organized. Basically, um, what happens is these Mormons don't want to leave after the extermination order. So they decide that they're going to stay. Some Mormon families went to higher ground. So the militia gathers ready to drive these Mormons out. and. We have the Mormons starting to f- form their own defensive militia. Now, it is said that, uh, there was this, you know, huge, terrible bat- uh, battle. Lots of bad things. Children were killed. Um, members of the militia had entered a shop and found a 10-year-old Serdius Smith, 8-year-old Alma Smith, and 9-year-old Charles Merrick hiding under the blacksmith's bellows. Alma and Charles were shot, and Charles later died, William Reynolds put his musket against Sardius' skull and shot him in the head. He later explained, quote, nits will make lice, and if he had lived, he would become a Mormon. So it was really ruthless and cruel and violent, and a lot of the people ran into hide in the woods. There was supposed to be violence and, and rape. Andrea Radke Moss talks about this, and you can look up her uh, Sunstone presentation. The audio is online on org. So it's just it's just really really violent. Most of the m- women and children escaped, and the men mostly unarmed hold up in the blacksmith shop, which was a terrible terrible place to be because they ended up being trapped. Um, I think that it was said that seventeen Mormons were killed a bunch more were were wounded. The seventeen um were considered martyrs after the time they became martyrs they were talked about in martyrs for the cause. Early Latter-day St. Benjamin Andrews wrote a description of Hans Mill later on in 1844. He, he wrote, quote, We can never forget the injuries done us in Missouri. They are ever present to our minds. We feel it impossible to efface them from our memories. We can never forget the blood of our brethren, so wantonly lavished to satisfy the infernal thirsts of men, as heinous to the righteous as the fiends of hell. Were we to forget them, heaven itself would upbraid us. The mortal shades of our martyred brethren would spurn us from their presence. Their cries with those seen under the altar of God as viewed by the ancient prophet would ascend to the throne of the Jehovah against us. We swear by the precious memory of the illustrious dead, the fathers of our independence, that we will remember them. We will do all in our power to mete out justice to those who without the least cause have murdered our friends." And so you can tell, I mean, this was a huge sticking point of pain. The saints were already feeling uh, persecuted, and now they've been victimized. It was a, it was a horrible, horrible incident. Uh, Joseph Smith usually spoke lovingly and favorably about the Hans Mill people. Uh, he let that sort of rally the Mormons together. But he did give a sermon in 1842 on the importance of listening to his counsel. He sort of concluded that if God had given them the wisdom to, God had given him wisdom to save people and if they would have listened to him, then they would have been spared. And it kind of suggests that uh, these people weren't martyrs, but they didn't listen to Joseph Smith. So that's an interesting, interesting part of the story. So 17 killed, I think it was 13 that were wounded, including a woman and a little boy. And there were only three militiamen who were injured and none of them were killed. And I, I don't know that any of them were ever went to trial. Um, it, This was all part of a larger Mormon war that was taking place in Missouri in 1838. And just this whole struggle of Mormons to get along with non-Mormons. And, um, you know, a lo- there was really no justice that ever came from Hans Mill for the saints. So it really, really sat in their minds. And Desdemona was involved in this. And that would have been a terrifying, terrifying time to be alive and to be a Mormon. After David and his family, after her brother David and his family had been driven out of Missouri in 1839, he assisted his parents in moving to Nauvoo, Illinois. They obtained land four miles east of Nauvoo on which to build homes for all the boys in the family. And the Fulmer family owned one quarter section of the land known as the Fulmer Tract. A map of the city of Nauvoo hangs on the wall in the church historian's office, showing where the land was situated. The city of Nauvoo had a Fulmer Street, which borders one side of the original tract. From the time that they arrived in Nauvoo until the death of Joseph Smith, the Fulmer family was closely associated with him and his brother, Hiram, and also the whole Smith family. The several families socialized together, and there are tales of them rolling up the rugs in the Prophet's home so they could engage in dancing, and so that the Prophet and John Solomon could engage in wrestling matches. According to the Nauvoo Fourth Ward records, in the spring of 1842... Desdemona, who was now thirty years old, was living in Joseph Smith's home. During her stay, Elvira Cowles and the Partridge sisters, who we've talked about earlier, were also staying in Joseph Smith's home. Desdemona had the privilege of attending the first meeting of the Female Relief Society in Nauvoo, and she contributed a dollar twenty five to the society. Sometime before the spring of eighteen forty three, and for some unknown reason, Desdemona moved out of the Smith home and asked to board with William Clayton, who was Joseph Smith's trusted scribe. Later on, she married Joseph in 1843 with Brigham Young performing the ceremony. William Clayton records in his journal on January 29, 1844, he asked Desdemona to leave his own household. He writes, quote, She has treated my family unfeelingly and unkindly in various ways, and I requested her to look out, look out for another home, End quote. And according to historian Top Compton, Desdemona would not leave the home until she could discuss the matter with Joseph Smith. She did not get an audience with him, but with with Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Clayton. And she accused William Clayton of trying to kick her. He denied it and accused her of having a malicious disposition. So you can see that that was getting really ugly. Um, Here's Joseph's trusted scribe. Here's does Demona, who is married now to Joseph Smith, and Nauvoo elite, you can see that that would be a tricky situation. During this time, Emma was now Emma Smith was now aware of the practice of plural marriage, and she was agonizing over it. Does Demona, feeling the anxiety over the anguish of Emma discovering her and Joseph's relationship, and probably witnessing the reaction Emma had to the Partridge sister, she would have been around when Emma was really really upset about that. She does Demona has this prophetic dream. In this dream, she has sort of this prophetic vision of Emma Smith. She would say, quote,
1: In the rise of polygamy, I was warned in a dream. Emma Smith was going to poison me. I told my dream to brother Joseph. He told me it was true, and she would do it if she could.
0: So she she feels like Emma's out to get her, and Emma's going to now kill her. Now remember... We don't know if there's any evidence to back up that Emma had a personal axe to grind with Desdemona, but we do know that Desdemona has seen Emma, you know, reacting to polygamy, being very upset about it. She would have been involved in the scandal of kicking these other women out of the house. It would have been a big deal. So there was reason to fear Emma's reaction, although um the poison thing might be a little bit extreme. Desdemona, for the record, was never poisoned and continued to attend Relief Society as Joseph's poor wife until... He was killed in June of 1844. So you think you have conflicts in your Relief Society with sisters in your ward. Can you imagine sitting in Relief Society with Emma Smith, wondering and having dreams that she might be out to get her, and and reportedly having uh, her husband say, yeah, you better watch out for that. That might happen to you. Uh, Does Damana writes of her time before leaving Nauvoo? She says, quote,
1: In Nauvoo, I lived until the spring after the war took place afterwards the mob often came to the house and told us to leave my father lay speechless at that time with a fever there were three or four families living in the house at that time the mob came one day with one hundred armed men part of them stayed in the street and yelled like indians the rest of them came into the house broke locks and took all they pleased to take they found one keg of powder then they told us all to leave in one hour i told them that keg belonged to a man they had driven away that morning
0: after Joseph's death and before leaving for Utah, Desdemona had her sealing to Joseph re performed in the Nauvoo Temple. Ezra T. Benson stood as proxy, not Ezra Taft Benson, Ezra T. Benson stood as proxy, and she was sealed to him, Ezra, for time on January 26, 1846. At age 36, she would be Ezra's third wife. Their marriage appears, by most accounts, an unhappy one. Desdemona was Never mentioned him in her autobiography, and he left her for the West without her, marrying two wives along the way. Desdemona arrived in Salt Lake City in October of 1848 in the Willard Richards Company, and her life between 1848 and 1850 is sketchy. But we do know that in the 1850 census of Utah, Desdemona was living in the household of Ezra T. Benson in Salt Lake City. We do know that she wrote of this time saying, quote,
1: The first year in this place I suffered with hunger.
0: By September 21st, 1852, Desdemona and Ezra formally divorced, and she began to live with the Ira Arms family. Shortly after, she married a man named Harrison Parker McLean, who was from uh, Kentucky. Ezra T. Benson stood as a witness to the ceremony, which suggested that he approved of the match. Uh, Desdemona had one child, Desdemona McLean, who was born and died the same year. She would have no more children. This was a particular time of hunger and suffering for her, and she would write, I ate beef hide and wore a part of it on my
1: feet, not being tanned. At one time, he and I lived on biscuit, 17 days only, wild green salt and water, and went half a mile to find them. At another time, brought bran, wheat, and lone bean, and nothing else.
0: Her husband, Harrison, who was an elder in the church, began to turn away from the gospel. And Desdemona writes about this and says,
1: he would speak against Brother Young and all good men. I would talk in their favor. He would say to me, Damn, your damn tongue ought to be cut out by the roots. So he left this church with a woman, a Moorsite one.
0: So the Moorsites were a splinter group of the LDS saints, and he leaves, and um, their separation occurred sometime between 1860 and 1863. So you can imagine that would have been a minor scandal and probably a heartache for her. During this time, Elder T. Benson was called by President Young to move to Cache Valley to organize wards and stakes and name the towns. Peter Maughan, whom Benson had known in Tooele County, was the presiding bishop in Cache Valley and also the president of the stake. The Mormon apostle Benson met the people of Logan and gave them instructions. Ezra T. Benson and Peter Maughan worked well together, and they traveled and organized all these new settlements into wards and proposed bishops' names. As Logan was in the center of the little towns, it became the largest settlement, so that's kind of how Logan came to be, and that's where I went to school, so I like all these little towns up there. Ezra T. Benson was doing some work in Ogden when he fell to the ground without warning. He was dead at the age of 58 years old and died on uh, the 3rd of September, 1869. They say that overwork and the burden of worry had weakened his heart and brought on his death. When Desdemona was in her late 50s, she wrote a short autobiography and delivered it to the church historian office where it could be preserved. And she wrote, quote,
1: I want to write a short history of my life, the more particular part that I think will do the youth some good, and those that came into this church not having the same experience that I have had. The Spirit of the Lord directed me, and angels visited me, and my faith increased. In this church. I belong 30 years in this church, and the longer I live it, the better I like it.
0: In her latter days, Desdemona lived with her brother David Fulmer and his family, trading him a cow and a, cow and a calf valued at $50 in return for a room in his house when it was finished. She also left a will dated um, September 18, 18, 1881, and here's what she says. To
1: President J. Taylor, Desdemona Fulmer Smith, living in the city of Salt Lake, Territory of Utah, the day and year aforesaid, make the following statements and will of my property. To President John Taylor, for the worthy poor, such as the following, the room in the building where I reside, the cooking stove with all its belongings, the bedstead, straw mattress, the best feather bed, three feather pillows, four light quilts, one heavy comfort, A flower-box, a big clothes-box, a coal box a big rocking-chair. For Sarah S. Fulmer The clock, three shelves covered with all the dishes, with all the trumpery about the house. To Sarah S. Fulmer and her three daughters, and James her son, All the cotton and shoes not named in the sheet for others shall be divided with Sarah and her four children named. To Joseph F. Smith, the Apostles' family Shall have the large frame glass with all inside, and the looking glass, one blue woolen dress, one worsted rose dress, one pongee silk dress, one summer coat. To Marcy E. Thompson, one black Delane dress, one thick waterproof dress, two reddish calico dresses, one brown calico dress, the rose piece quilt, a thick cloth coat, and a light feather bed. To Jean Fulmer, all my writings and papers. To James Fulmer,
0: all my books. Signed, Desdemona Fulmer Smith. She would die on February 9th, 1886 in Salt Lake City, Utah at the age of 77 years old. And she's buried in the Salt Lake City Cemetery as Desdemona Fulmer Smith. So if you want to go and see her gravesite, you can remember that someone who was at the Hans Mill Massacre. Funeral services were held on Thursday, February 11th, 1886 at 1 p.m., in the Salt Lake City 6th Ward Chapel of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this would have been located at the 270 East 500 South in Salt Lake City, Utah. Following the conclusion of her funeral services, the funeral procession commenced and solemnly and slowly went through the streets of Salt Lake City, Utah, to the the cemetery located at the corner of 4th Avenue and and N Street in the avenues of the neighborhood of Salt Lake City, where Desdemona was laid to rest in the family plot overlooking the Salt Lake Valley. So she had an interesting life. She was very involved um, in the early, early violent histories of Missouri, which would have been an unfortunate time. And it would seem that she, by some accounts, was a difficult person to live with and to get along with. Her marriages didn't really survive, and she didn't have luck staying with people for very long. So she she would be lonely. She would lose her child and um, kind of go it alone. Her Her life of polygamy, even though she had an abundance of husbands. She didn't really have an abundance of partners, so that's kind of a sad story. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and uh special thanks to Katrine Judd for doing our reading today. Can't wait to continue with you on the series of Bligamy for the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can give a donation at org. That really helps ensure that these um, podcasts continue, that these podcasts cost money to produce, There's equipment and server fees and all of that. And so it would be greatly appreciated. And I want to thank everyone who's donated so far. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.